Marxism, on the other hand, focused on the how the transmission was dominated by class inequalities, which of course it was, but in fact they, couldn't, they didn't really focus on what was in fact the transmission involved. Now one or two of us, and particularly I work, when I'm working with my colleague who later became Director of Education, uh, the Director of the Institute, Jeff Whitty, um, we tried to bridge the two, but we actually find it very difficult to move beyond the critique of existing forms of transmission. Uh, and uh, in a sense, uh, I think we didn't, no one really managed to grasp the question is, how is it that this quite esoteric knowledge that's produced by researchers in different disciplines gets actually transformed into the knowledge that becomes accessible in a school curriculum, or at least accessible to some. Now jump ahead, if I may, to the uh, uh, 1980s, when our friend Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, she wasn't very keen not only on uh, society, but on sociology either. Um, and uh, it, it was a bleak time, and uh, certainly a bleak time for sociology, and a kind of disenchantment arose about whether or not this sociology of education had the kind of emancipatory possibilities that we thought it had got when I first started, when I was a student of Bernstein's at the University of Essex in 1967. Um, and uh, so what happened was that um, different sociologists, and I one, turned to policy and practical problems, youth unemployment, gender, race, special education needs, all fields of inquiry that we hoped might have some practical use, but we thought we could do something about them without having any theory to do it with. Uh, and uh, so what happened, in my experience, certainly, because I was worked on post-16 education and youth training and whole vocational education area. What, what happened was, in a sense, that in fact we focused on policies, but each time we thought we'd understood a policy, it changed because you got a new minister. And so, in a sense, it, was, it became policy-driven research. Uh, and uh, uh, the only thing we remember, really, about the time, was that, in fact, they invariably sent their civil servants across to the United States to find another thing that might be an innovation they could introduce as if it was new. Um, so, that, that was the bleak, the bleak 1980s. But there was a kind of something else going on, uh, and I want to dwell on it because it was the forerunner of the recent interest in powerful knowledge. Um, and it started by people beginning to ask the question, how had we got, the, how did the new sociology of education, which wanted to take knowledge seriously, how had it got gone so wrong, particularly in the book like Knowledge and Control? Um, and uh, it, it, it began, and I think this was very important for me, not for everyone else at the time. What was important for me was, I think, was I, I remember asking the, the question, what is this institution that we have in modern societies, and we are expanding in modern societies, called formal <coughs> education? What is it actually for? What do we expect it to achieve for the people who spend longer and longer periods in it? Uh, and so forth. That, that seemed to be uh, the... Uh, and the second thing was, was there an alternative to the dominant explanation of why we do which, as you'll know, uh, in the 90s and so forth, although the string of Labour governments, was a version of human capital theory. Some of you will remember Blair's famous quote, our education policy is the best economic policy that we have. That sums it up to me. Now this, I think, is, was as much a, is as much a question for universities as it is for schools. Um, so the, the issue we, we uh, 
turn to, and this is where this relationship between knowledge of the powerful and powerful knowledge comes up, uh, was in a sense unease about the idea of treating the curriculum as, as knowledge of the powerful. Because what it doesn't tell us about is uh, what the interests of the powerful were, why those in power chose the curriculum they did, why over time their interests changed. Remember, the powerful in the, uh, up until the middle of the last century, their, the elite curriculum was dominated by Latin and Greek as if that was actually the best way to educate the future elite. I mean, that, and uh, obviously that's not true anymore. But um, now, I in sociology, all we really had was what I call a language of correspondence to the economy and cultural reproduction. Uh, and that did little more than describe what anyone, everyone really knew was happening. Inequalities were being produced, uh, reproduced, and even increasingly, sadly, increasing. That was the first. That, that, that was the kind of critical issue. Uh, now, the second issue was the, the recognition that, in a sense, we had neglected the few resources we had to ask, if you like, the important questions about knowledge and education. This is where I come to uh, my uh, former tutor, Basil Bernstein, who, as you know, was professor at the Institute from 19, the early 60s until his death in 2002. Um, not, I have to say, the easiest of people to be taught by, managed by, engaged with, okay. at his best, over a bottle of claret, when in fact, but uh, you couldn't really run a, a department or an institute <laughs> on claret. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant guy, but uh, anyway, enough said. Um, it, it, uh, now, the thing that struck, struck us was that, in a sense, uh, that his work and I sympathise with people who are not sociologists because it's not easy to read, you don't know where to start, when you get up you get bogged down and I've had countless students who actually don't know what to do with it. Uh, they pick up these various uh, concepts and they think that the answer is to pick up the concepts and label the world with them. But actually having labelled the world, you know, that's visible pedagogy, that's invisible, that's strong classification, that's weak framing, that somewhere or other they've actually said something. Well, actually, they, all they've done is to find another language. But that's not, that's, that's their problem. It's in a sense, it's not what Bernstein. Bernstein's concepts were, if you can actually get a handle on them, actually questions, hypotheses. And that's what makes them exciting. They were not labels, although they look like labels. Uh, and he, and uh, I call them, given my uh, sort of sociological biography, I, I call them ideal types. But he didn't like that at all. Uh, because he wasn't a fan of Max Weber as I was, who actually coined the phrase. But I think he wanted to have a much more totalistic account of the world than Max Weber, who's very sceptical about that view of sociology. Okay. Um, and, uh, but the important thing about Bernstein was that in a sense that he, he asked a question that the much more famous, in some ways, uh, leading sociologists of education... <coughs> Uh, over the time, Pierre Bourdieu never actually asked. Uh, asked. And um, it, the question he asked was, how is it, and this relates to something I said at the beginning, how is it that schools manage to transform this knowledge produced by specialists and transform it from, uh, so that it's accessible and distributed from one generation to another? And why did it do it the way it is? And why, in a sense, did it systematically claim to be doing it for all, but actually only be doing it for some? That was his 
question. That was his question. And he, I won't go into it anymore, but just to say that he, he said, confused me for a lot, but I see now why he done it. He said, if we think of the education system as a pedagogic device, uh, and he was kind of cribbing that from Chomsky, I think, the device notion. If we do that, then in a sense we can see what it's trying to do. I never find it very helpful, that, but that's up to me. Um, now, Bernstein's work, though, became widely more widely known, and, and I, who had given it up uh, since, since the 70s, was incomprehensible and uh, a, a completely wrong direction. I never read it at all. But uh, it, uh, I, I came, there was a paper in 1999, which I strongly recommend you, which you may have read, written by the late Rob Moore, who was at Homerson, some of you will know him, uh, and uh, John, Joe Miller, who's in Cape Town. And Joe was a visiting professor there at Cambridge on voice discourses. And what they did was to actually demolish all the work that had been done before in sociology education, not the least the work by yours truly. And uh, these were friends of mine, so I kind of had to engage with what they were saying <laughs> in a slightly different way. To, I couldn't just say right-wing ideology or something like that. I couldn't, you know, no. Uh, now, the positive alternative, which I think some of us have been working through since, was represented by uh, an equally breakthrough paper, which some of you have read by Bernstein, similar time, 1999, uh, which is titled Vertical and Horizontal Discourses and Essay. That is typical Bernstein. It's only an essay, just a little thing that I've tossed off, you know, and that was a, a bit of Bernstein. And in a sense, what was important about that paper uh, was that it, uh, it, it underlies how it might be worth thinking about the curriculum in terms of powerful knowledge. It opened up a whole number of questions that were just not being asked. It opened up questions not only about access and equal opportunity, but about what the opportunity was for and what the access was to, uh, and why it was for some and, uh, and not others. And it went beyond the issue of widening participation to ask what I think, in a sense, is the fundamental educational question. What is the knowledge being acquired by students? And this question is applicable to students, for instance, who go to Eton College, who get 97% at the age of six, getting A's to, A's to C's at, um, uh, at 16, to going to the secondary bomb school in Knowsley near Liverpool, where the figure is 17%, in a sense. So we had the beginning, I think, there, of a theory of the curriculum. Uh, but it was not until 2010 that, and the publication of the uh, coalition government's uh, document, a framework for the curriculum, that, in a sense, they picked up the idea of powerful knowledge, which I'd written a bit about in a little book called Bringing Knowledge Back In, um, and uh, that, that, in a sense, the question of knowledge became a policy issue, not just a rather esoteric little game that some sociologists were playing. And that's what's made it different from then, and made it the difficulty of it, I think, much clearer. Uh, so we have lots of schools now, and, I, and the debate in that way hasn't taken place, but it has implications for higher education, I think. Uh, we have a lot of schools claiming to be having a knowledge-led curriculum, uh, but we feel rather unhappy sometimes. You go to these schools, and in a sense, their version of knowledge is in a sense a version that's more like training people to get high grades. GCSE than it is training them to actually understand, and that is the worry about that development. Um, and they are very much indebted to somebody 
probably rather unfairly, that I think Jan's going to refer to later, uh, Edie Hirsch, who is an interesting character because, in a sense, uh, he's an American, so a Democrat who was invited over by Policy Exchange, which was the institution which Gove founded. So he was invited over here by the right, although he'd been associated with the left in the States. Nevertheless, he, uh, his, it's been picked up particularly by the academies and used as justification for a very rigid kind of subject-based curriculum. Uh, and this is what the idea of taking knowledge seriously that I developed in some books has actually become in, in, in practice. And that's why the theory-practice relationship is so cute. Um, and it's highlighted a very complex issue about what knowledge means when it's that, that way. Um, so what I, in a sense, my, my argument, I'm in a sense trying to think through it, not only in a theoretical way, but a practical way, in a, in a, a school that's adopted a knowledge-led curriculum in East London, uh, and, uh, but is having problems of the kind I've referred to, is that, in fact, if you develop an idea of powerful knowledge independent as a curriculum principle, but don't have it as a pedagogic principle, then, in a sense, you're actually going to have, you're not going to have a curriculum based upon powerful knowledge. You're going to have a curriculum based upon regurgitation and repetition. Uh, because, because, and this won't be new to you, but it's still, uh, it's still important, I think, to think about, um, that uh, a curriculum is not just something that's <coughs> written down, however much you can... I mean, this school has 11 subjects with very clearly expressed contents you say, oh, that's good, they're going to learn all that, that is great. But in a sense, remember that, one has to remember that in a sense, the curriculum is a plan of action and not just a text, and that's really important. Um, because it forgets some points about, about knowledge. I'm a little bit worried about how long I've got, got because I'm not, but anyway, I hope you'll be patient. Um, ten, because ten I think minutes. what ten minutes. ten minutes. Well, we're going. We're doing. We're doing our best. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it. Um, I want to say, so, um, it forces us back to think about the question of knowledge. And I'm, you know, we'll think about this, what I say, and then what Jan said. I, I don't claim. I'm a sociologist thinking about <coughs> knowledge, not a philosopher. Just important that. So, um, first of all, the point I made already, you can't actually think about research or teaching independently of thinking about knowledge. Because it's always about finding out or teaching something. Um, and this points to something distinctive about knowledge, which we can forget, that it ha always has some degree of objectivity, that it's always, in a sense, we have in schools and universities, because we do, act, we do make an assumption that the knowledge that you can get if you go there is actually better than the knowledge that you come with from your everyday life experience. And that is crucial. Um, uh, secondly, and this is more difficult, and it really goes to the heart of the problem that the schools face. Um, knowledge involves a relationship in two senses. A relationship to the knower and a relationship to those who produce and in some sense validate the knowledge as better or true or whatever. Thirdly, knowledge differentiates the world we experience and is itself differentiated. And that's why some knowledge, and particularly curriculum knowledge, is specialised. We need to look at what that means and what its implications are. Fourthly, if knowledge is relational, it takes you back to the question of knowledge being social, because in a sense what we do with, the, with our concepts is we share them, that, that's how they, we don't, if, if, if it wasn't social, if it was only ours, 
we wouldn't actually be able to use them to give the world any meaning. You know, we describe leaves as green because we learn from others why green is different from blue and so forth. Uh, fifthly, I think that's probably a Wittgensteinian point, but I don't read Wittgenstein, so uh, I'll leave that to those who do. Um, so, fifthly, as you know, this is obvious in a way, but it's important to say, because we as human beings, living um, version of animals, uh, we are born with so few instincts, we are actually, the thing we are born with is curiosity. What the French and the psychoanalyst Lacan called the desire for knowledge. And that means that in a sense, people who share, who actually come together around what they are curious about and that in a sense better knowledge is produced by people focusing on what they are most curious about. And for most of human history there was very little specialization either in different societies or historically over time. Now I'm going to jump here a bit but in fact what was a breakthrough for me was actually going back to reading Durkheim on these matters. And Durkheim, in a sense, had an idea which is now allowed. The idea is a lot of date, out of date, but there's a lot to be said for it, I think. And, and what he thought was that, in a sense, if you study the most simplest societies that there are, you may be able to learn something that's a feature of all human societies. He had a notion of humanity then, uh, which I think uh, is one to hold on to. And in a sense, uh, um, and he when he talked about the differentiation of knowledge, he, he used these rather archaic terms, profane and sacred. Uh, but in fact, they do point to a crucial structural feature of knowledge differentiation, which I think is really important. And it's really important for education in particular. And that was that in fact, there's some knowledge that is always tied to experience particular cases. There's some knowledge that's not and it's basically what it's tied to, what we share with others. So it's conceptually, it, it's conceptually held together. So some is relating to, so there's some, the second kind of knowledge has a kind of stability. The first, because in a sense to change it, you have to change everybody else's. Not easy, particularly if they happen to be a community of people like physicists. You try and get them to be, to think that string theory is a, is a good way of bringing together quantum theory and relativity. They won't stand it. They won't stand it, so it's not a theory yet, you know. And, and there's a reason for that, you know. It's partly, it's partly because it it can't it can't do what they what this feel right. I think has to be done by any theory, which is actually find some empirical evidence. But it's partly also that in fact they are a community, and I'll come back to that because it's really important. Um, and um, it, uh, but Durkheim. Uh, Durkheim recognised something that, it, certainly when I first read as a sociology student, didn't recognise in Durkheim, Durkheim actually made a remarkable insight. And that was that this sacred, the structure, this sacred knowledge, the structure of it, of not being tied to, partic to the particular, because it, and it frees people from the particular, uh, was a feature of all societies and was actually the basis of science, modern intellectual thought. In other words, he's off, was, uh, Durkheim was offering a theory of the human origins of knowledge. Um, and uh, Bernstein developed it in two steps, which I hope I've got time because it is quite important. Uh, first of all, he distinguished, uh, he used Dur Durkheim's profane and uh, sacred 
um, to distinguish between, if you like, because he was talking about the curriculum in the end, the everyday knowledge that pupils bring to school and the knowledge they face when they actually face the curriculum. Um, and, uh, and he made that distinction between, if you like, what he called vertical and horizontal discourses. Uh, and because they were clearly, they were clearly very, very different in terms of their claims to validation. It wasn't one was true and one was false. They had different purposes and different structures. Um, and uh, then he made a second step that, in fact, was important: was that if you take the vertical discourses, then in a sense they themselves are differentiated. So that, for instance, to take an example, literature <laughs> is very different from physics. And, and how is it different from physics? Now, he argued, and this is something that we might discuss in triple, I think is interesting. Um, he argued is they're different in terms of the way that knowledge progresses in them. That, in a sense, new knowledge in physics is, in fact, more abstract versions of what they already know. So that, in a sense, Einstein is not saying Newton was wrong. Einstein is saying Newton is too tied to a particular case i.e. the earth we live in. Um, now, if you switch across to the horizontal, what Bernstein is saying is, not, is that, in a sense, uh, if, you take, if you take literature, then people are always developing new kinds of literature, but they're actually developing not by getting more abstract, although some of them, the post-structuralists, try to, and they end up by not being able to say anything about anything at all. Uh, but, in a sense, uh, that, in fact, they're about actually saying, here's a quite different way of looking at what you were looking at. And this is true about psychology, and to some extent it's also true about my own field, sociology. That in fact, that's what, if you like, what he calls segmented knowledge structures, that's what they do. They create new knowledge in a quite different way. Uh, and, and in a sense, uh, and I, I, I think uh, that that's uh, quite important. And um, now, I'm just jumping a little bit. You will two or three minutes. Two or three minutes, oh good. Hmm. Now, to um, ask the question, why is Bernstein's distinction important? And how does it relate to powerful knowledge? It's, uh, it's important because it tells us why we want, might want to include certain knowledge structures and what they might do for those that acquire them and why knowledge boundaries might be important in some contexts but also, and that there's no straight, you know, that in a sense, or in other contrasts, going beyond the boundary may be important. Um, in, a, in other words, uh, in a sense, what he's saying is that if we're thinking about the university or the school, uh, we need to take account of the structural differentiation of knowledge. That is absolutely crucial. And to some extent, I think that from my point of view, this is what I've come to see as the particular not uh, the particular contribution of sociology of curriculum, whether it's higher education, vocational <coughs> education, whatever, to actually explore that structuring of knowledge and how it can be developed in seen in different ways. Now, a word about the school, these schools who claimed to have knowledge-led curriculum, but, um, the, and particularly the one that I've been involved in, because they emphasise separate subjects. This school, come there at 11, and you get 11 different subjects uh, you get. Uh, and uh, because it's a science school, you get physics, chemistry, and biology from the moment, moment you arrive to all the way through. And, and in a sense, what they are hoping <coughs> is that they will get a large proportion of their kids who will get good grades, GCSE, and go on. And, and the, the kind of 
broader philosophical rationale is that in Newham at the moment, very few young people, mostly uh, ethnic minorities, very few young people get the kind of education that enables them to become engineers, doctors, technologists, anything like that. And in a sense, they want to break that in what they're trying to do. Anyway, that's it. Um, now, what the, the problem that they find, and any, and is the other aspect, if you like, of uh, knowledge, which I've only, in a sense, touched on. That, in fact, if you take something like a discipline in the university or a subject in the school, um, they're not just collections of concepts, examples, and methods, which they are. That's what they look like if you produce a syllabus. They're also communities of specialists, and that makes the school not so different from the university, because in a sense that, in fact, people who are strangers to the community, the students or the pupils, are, in a sense, the, the, if you like, the object of pedagogy, and I haven't said a lot about pedagogy, but in a sense, yet, although that's the title, the object of pedagogy is to, in fact, enable kids to engage with those communities and become, if you like, junior members and progress as far as they are able to. Uh, they're neophyte members of the communities and they, they become that because of their active engagement uh, with the different communities. And uh, in a sense, uh, this implies a very different notion of pedagogy than the one that is, tends, you tend to find in these schools and uh, which is more like uh, reproducing facts and memorising facts, and I'm not for a moment saying that you don't need to memorise and, uh, and, and uh, uh, facts, because of course you do. But in a sense, if you see them by default as the the end rather than the means to actually further understanding, then in a sense you end up with something more like training and less like education. Um, and I was going to, but I will uh, be polite about that and uh, uh, say something about the fact that Bernstein also had some very interesting things to say about uh, the, the, different, the, kinds of, the different kinds of curricula that you find, particularly in university. Some are academic and some are professional, although even the professional ones are quite academic. But I haven't got time really to go into that, but there are a number of people in the audience uh, who in fact have done work on that who I know, so I'm sure it will come up. Um, it, um, what I just wanted to end by is to recommend to you, I think, really, particularly if you're not immediately excited by Bernsteinian language, there is an excellent paper by a, uh, a, a couple of friends and colleagues of mine in Australia in the last issue of the Curriculum Journal about physics. And uh, it's not actually about physics per se at all. Because one of the things Bernstein always emphasised in his work is that he was not interested in the content of physics. Why should he be? He didn't know any physics. Uh, he was interested in the structure of physics, its relationships. That's the difference. Anyway, it's a, uh, what they did was to do a kind of dual comparison. Um, they had about 150 people there. They, they were comparing, on the one hand, history and physics, vertical and horizontal and segmental knowledge structures. On the other hand, the teaching of history and the teaching of physics in university and school. And I think it's quite critical of my work in a, in a creative and useful way. Uh, and uh, I think it's the most informative. I gave it 
to uh, a, uh, a friend who teaches physics in a, a secondary school. And he said, it's the first bit of education I've ever read that actually speaks to what I'm trying to think about. Anyway, I, it's a uh, Quickham Journal, I, uh, Lynn Yates and Victoria Miller. I do strongly recommend it, and it is amazingly accessible. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much.